0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, your host for today's episode. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Susan Reverby about her book, Examining Tuskegee, the infamous syphilis study and its legacy. The book isn't new, but it's newly relevant as the Tuskegee study has re-entered popular discourse in a big way, I would say over the last year for reasons that we'll get into in our discussion. Uh, Susan Reverby is the Marion Butler-McLean Professor Professor Emerita in the History of Ideas and Professor Emerita of Women's and Gender Studies at Wellesley College. She is a historian of American healthcare, women, race, and public health with a focus on equality and ethics. Uh, And Susan has researched and written extensively on the infamous Tuskegee Syphilis Study that we'll be speaking about today. And she was also part of the Legacy Committee that resulted in President Clinton's federal apology for the study in 1997. Uh, And additionally, in 2010, her article on a U.S. study in Guatemala in the late 1940s that involved infecting men and women with sexually transmitted diseases. And I want to make clear here, this was not part of the Tuskegee study. Uh, But her work on that study led to an apology to the Guatemalans by the Obama administration. So she's um, done a lot of work research into uh, sexually transmitted diseases and the ethics of that research. So Susan, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me on again. I really appreciate it.
0: Sure. It's a pleasure. And you and I spoke on the show last uh, November about your newest book, co-conspirator for justice, the revolutionary life of Dr. Alan Berkman. But um, I keep hearing Tuskegee referred to in often passionate, sometimes inaccurate ways, for instance, on the radio, So I thought what a great idea to ask you back to talk about your really authoritative book on the Tuskegee study. Uh, And also that'd be interesting to ask you to look at it in light of the present moment, which is I think 12 years after it was published. So uh, before we start would you, just tell us a bit about how you got involved in researching the Tuskegee study because I think you spent 15 or 20 years working on it.
1: Yeah. more time than I, uh, I care to think about. So um, I started out as a uh, historian of women and, and nursing, and I was fishing around for a second project. And I actually happened to see a play called Miss Evers Boys, which is um, a fictionalization of the Tuskegee study based on a fictionalized telling of the story of a woman named Eunice Rivers Laurie, who becomes the African-American nurses that go between the men in Tuskegee, Alabama and the Public Health Service. So maybe I should just stop here for a second. Let me explain what the study is for people who don't know and then I can explain how I got interested. Yeah, great. So uh, in, an, in, a, in the elevator version of the story, in the mid 1930s, there was beginning to be discussion about whether or not the treatment for syphilis, which is a sexually transmitted disease, um, was worse than um, the disease itself. And at that point we were using heavy metals and um, mercury, uh, bismuth, um, something called neo to to supposedly cure the disease. And there was really uh, uncertainty about whether it worked um, or not, especially if people survived to the third stage of the disease where it affected other parts of their bodies but it uh, was no longer contagious. That is, you couldn't give it to anybody else. So there had been a study in the early 1910s where uh, a physician in Oslo um, had tracked uh, 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 white people who had had the disease to see whether or not the treatment made any difference. And he argued that the treatment really didn't matter. So there was an interest in seeing if that was true for African-Americans as well, because the assumption in the twenties and thirties was that African-Americans were quote unquote, a syphilis soaked race unquote. And it was also assumed that the disease was different in blacks and whites. That is that black people got the cardiovascular complications from the disease and white people got the neurological complications. So a study, uh, some treatment studies were done in the late 1920s in a couple of counties in the South. And then the depression hit, there was no money, but the United States public health service thought, wow, we know that there's a Uh, some disease in this county in Alabama, why don't we go back and see whether or not if we don't treat, um, it will actually uh, make no difference. So they rounded up um, uh, in the end, approximately 400 um, African-American men. And they only did men because they were concerned about if women were pregnant, then you'd have to worry about the fetus. And they only did men because uh, the first sign of syphilis is usually a sore on wherever whatever part of the body got um, transmitted sexually. So it was easier for men to see a sore on their penises than it was for women to see the sore inside their vaginas. So men just were easier to use. Um, so they only um, looked at African-American men. They they found about four, approximately 400 men with the disease and about 200 men without it. And they made the decision to just keep following them for a length of time. And, Part of the problem was they didn't tell the men, of course, that they were in an experiment or a research project. They told them that they were being um, treated for their bad blood. And what they were being treated with was not the standard treatment, but in fact, um, aspirin, some uh, you know, vitamin tonics, um, things like that, and some vitamins. And then they were also brought into the hospital in Tuskegee and given uh, diagnostic spinal taps to see whether or not they had neurological complications. And they were told that it was a special treatment. So the study starts and then it keeps going and it keeps going. And in the 1940s, um, during the war, if you were... um, Drafted, you would be tested for STDs. And so they asked the local draft board not to draft any of these men. The civil rights movement starts in the late 40s, early 50s, right in Tuskegee and nearby in Montgomery during the bus boycott. The study keeps going. And the study keeps going through the period in which we start using penicillin, which is discovered in the mid 1940s to be a cure for early syphilis. Um, they don't give the men penicillin either. They just keep the study going. And finally, it doesn't end um, until 1972 when another um, sexually transmitted diseases um, investigator found out about the study, was so horrified and couldn't get them to stop it that he gave the story to a newspaper reporter friend of his and then it went out on the Associated Press wire and all hell broke loose about how this study had now gone on for 40 years. So the key... Concepts in the study are, A, it was a street study of non-treatment, even though the men were told they were being treated. It was only African-American men. And thirdly, the men already had the disease. No one was given syphilis by the government. They already had it when they were um, inducted into the study. So that's the short version of it. And it comes to light in 1972, around the same time as there's beginning to be lots of discussion about bioethics issues and the beginning realization that the terrible things that often happen in American medical research are not done by the monster doctors, but are in fact done by the so-called good guys who just seize an opportunity, think it's a really important study and lose sight of who and what's going on. So Tuskegee comes at the end of a, a series of studies like that. And so there is more and more discussion. And finally, a set of rules that are promulgated that really ask for both issues of equality and justice when it comes to medical research. So that's why Tuskegee becomes so important.
0: Yeah. And that set of rules you're referring to, that's the Belmont Report.
1: That's correct. So it's a report about what are the principles we should use um, and that involves making sure there's informed consent and making sure that there's some kind of equity in the way we do this um, and a call for justice in the kinds of search we do.
0: Hmm. Yeah, Um, one thing that's interesting to me about that, the informed consent, uh, because that was a big issue here. Although as you write, it wasn't the only issue you know, did the men truly give informed consent? What, why don't we just address that? Did, did the men give any kind of informed consent? I mean, when the study started, there were no uh, guidelines whatsoever.
1: No, I mean, there was the assumption that you wouldn't harm people. And certainly with some surgical procedures, you still had to sign. So the thing that's interesting about Tuskegee is, One of the ways they could prove that the men had syphilis wasn't just all the various blood tests, but when people died, you could see the damage on their organs. So the the public health service really wanted autopsies. Um, So in order to induce the families to agree to sign consents actually for an autopsy, Hmm. um, they um, gave them money. So they promised to help pay for the funerals. So then the families got about $200, which would have paid for some of the, you know, for the funeral expenses um, if they agreed to the autopsy. So the only consent in the study was when they were dead.
0: That sounds kind of creepy going into a study, um, you know, when you die from this disease, we'll pay for your funeral. Yes. Uh,
1: it's pretty creepy <laughs> It's yeah. definitely um, up there in the, in, in creepiness, but on the other hand, it's also a time period where this kind of, you know, it's interesting. So my father was a solo practicing physician, but he did a little research on penicillin early on in his career. And in 1946, he was doing a study on, um, bacterial endocarditis, which is a bacterial infection of the heart um, in which in the days before penicillin, you would literally die from it. So I said to my father, what kind of informed consent did you give the patients when you tried this new drug? And he said, I told the patients if they didn't try this new drug, they'd die. So that wouldn't pass as informed consent today, but in 1946, clearly he was being honest. He was telling him it was a new drug, and we didn't know whether it would work or not, but here's your zero-sum you know, um, example. And in Tuskegee, they didn't tell the men what they were doing. They didn't tell them they weren't being given what we would now call standard of care. They weren't being given standard of care. They were being ignored.
0: Yeah.
1: And they didn't try to hide it. The other thing that's interesting about Tuskegee is that there were 12 reports in major medical journals about it, although by the late 40s and 50s, the later reports all refer to the men as volunteers. So you wouldn't really know that they hadn't been told.
0: But it got very complicated, too, didn't it? Because some of the men did, we believe, you believe got some penicillin treatment at some points over the 40 years.
1: Right, I mean, so the other thing to remember is we tend to think of Tuskegee the way we do about the concentration camp um, you know, experiments during the Second World War. But you know, uh, you know, Macon County, Alabama is not a, not a concentration camp and people um, were part of the great migration out of the rural South in the interwar and then the post-war period. And so people left um, Alabama and some people who even stayed got to treatment. So it wasn't as if the Public Health Service had this total control over them. Um, as It wasn't as if Nurse Rivers knew where they were every second. Um, and I found evidence and argue in the book that I think she also helped some of the men get out of the study that she knew it was wrong. And so she was essentially telling them where else to go to get treatment. So I think some of that was happening as well. So the studies, just from a scientific point of view, it's a disaster. Because it's also true that when some of the controls got sick. um, If they got syphilis, they were switched into the other arm of the study. But if a man proved to not really have syphilis, let's say you do the autopsy and discover he doesn't have any damage, then maybe you had a false positive in the blood test, they didn't switch them into the control arm. So the data is a mess and nothing really scientific was ever learned from this.
0: Well, and after all of that, 40 years, After all of
1: that after 40 years. Yes. Wow. What we um, learned was what not to do, but not what to do. <laughs> that's the
0: lesson. You think? Oh, gosh. But uh, before we get more to that, could you tell us more about Nurse Rivers? Because she was maybe the best known protagonist in the history of the study. I don't know if that's because of the, the play that came out that subsequently became an HBO film or but she seems to have kind of an outsized role. So what? Yeah. And, and
1: partly it's also a historical artifact. That is um, the first book about history book about Tuskegee was written by my colleague Jim Jones um, was at the University of Houston. Um, and in a book with a, you know, goes on for 40 years, there's lots of details and lots of doctors names, right? As you can imagine, hundreds of people come in and out, but he wrote a whole chapter about rivers um, because he got to interview her before she passed away. And I think, and then when David Felsher, the playwright and physician wrote Miss Evers' Voice, which becomes the play and then the movie on HBO, he centers it on her. So I think that's part of the fascination. And she becomes sort of the only visible woman in this study, even though there are others. And secondly, I think it's because we have this sort of weird expectation that somehow this African-American nurse would stop it. That somehow... So in Tuskegee, like in a lot of southern cities and small towns, there's a Confederate statue, for example, in the main square. And until the late 60s, African-American people weren't even supposed to walk in front of it Hmm. because it's a statue of a Confederate soldier. So, you know, I keep saying to people, what would you want her to do? Stand in the main square where she can't walk in front of the Confederate statue and start screaming her head off? Um, nobody would have listened, they would have carted her off, um, somebody else would have replaced her, and the whole thing would have continued. So, you know, I think she did what she thought she could do to help um, throughout the study, but I think people are fascinated by her because they, um, they want her to stop it. They don't quite understand why she would do it all, those, and she does it for the whole length of the study.
0: Yeah, and she was quite close to a lot of the men, and also you quoted, I believe it was a former student of hers who then became her supervisor in the hospital who said that she was a sort of a Harriet Tubman in that she did sort of uh, ferry some men into treatment with penicillin without letting the study coordinators know.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, Jim Jones and I have this argument about it all the time because he interviewed her and I did not. She had passed by the time I started to work on it. And So he says he doesn't think she did that, but I thought I had enough evidence from both the interview with the woman who had worked with her to some things that were written by the public health service. And then the obvious question when you interview, one of the men talks about going to a a special treatment center in Birmingham. And when he gives the testimony, he says, and I was sent to Birmingham. And then everybody's horrified because he gets there and then he gets called out of the line there. And this is a very dramatic moment also in the play and in the movie, and then he's sent back to Tuskegee. So you have this sense of him like a kind of medical slave, right? That gets to the north to the Mason, north of the Mason Dixon line, but he gets recaptured and sent back home, except nobody was being treated in this rapid treatment center who was in the advanced stages of the disease because they were no longer contagious. And secondly, this gentleman ended up getting um, uh, pneumonia in the 1950s, and so he gets 10 days worth of IV penicillin. Anyway, but the third question is, when he says in his interview, they sent me to Birmingham, it suddenly dawned on me that none of us had asked him, who sent you to Birmingham? How did he know to go? Right? It's not like he would have Googled it, right? There was no Googling. There was no internet, right? So who told him to go get treated? So if if the study was such a secret and if Rivers didn't help anybody, how the hell did he get out in the first place? Hmm. So that's the questions I've been raising to just to make it a bit more complicated than the assumption that the men had no other options. So, you know, there was some attempted follow-up when they left the county, but it wasn't, no one was sort of told not to treat them, you know? So I think a number of them, if they survived into the antibiotic era, probably got to some kind of haphazard treatment because in the forties and fifties, if you sneezed and got to a doctor, you probably got a shot of penicillin.
0: Right. Which again, as you say, just totally messes up the study. I was trying yes, to exactly. up with a, right. a, a word that I can use in public. Right. Yes. <laughs>
1: yes. Right. Yes. On the air. Right. Yes,
0: on yes. The Clean air. version of
1: this. Yes. <laughs> this was not a science. I mean, it was a study. As I said, what it shows us is what happens when arrogance gets in the way and when your racism makes you think that you have the right to do this. And so um, how I got into it was that I had been I knew about the study. I mean, anybody doing any kind of justice work or history of medicine would know about the study after 1972. And then um, I had done some work on the, my first dissertation book was on the history of nursing. And I was thinking about writing something about Rivers herself. And I saw the play, talked to the playwright, went to Tuskegee and discovered that the playwright made up this whole section of the play as about her giving testimony at a Senate hearing around the study, but she never testified. So there just wasn't enough material to do a whole book on her. And there also, I began to think, I don't want her to carry the weight of this. And so what I began to think about a lot is, well, why, why do people keep referring to Tuskegee? Why is it important? So the book ended up having sort of three sections, one just sort of retelling what happened, then a section sort of explaining all the people who were involved in it, And then a third section looking at how it, how does an idea like this travel? How does knowledge of this travel into American culture? and what role does it play? So that's what the book was about.
0: Yeah, and there's some really interesting, the last section which gets into the popular, both how it was um, delivered, the story was, was revealed in the press and also the first books that were written about it, including uh, Jim Jones's Bad Blood and the play that came out and how that shapes, you, you read about how that shapes not only uh, people's understanding, but people's memories.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, there's an amazing, there's a little film done by, I think it was a TV show, I think it was on ABC called Prime Time. So the way that they set the show up is there still were a number of the men have all passed away now, but there were still, you know, a dozen or so men still alive when this was done in the early 90s. And so they show them going to see the play and seeing themselves portrayed, you know, on the stage. And so, you know, it raises these interesting psychological questions of then. How much do you remember about what really happened to you? How different is it from what you see in the play? Um, What is it that your lawyer, because it was a lawsuit, what is it that your lawyer tells you you should tell the court in your affidavit because all the men's affidavits are exactly the same? You know, there's just all of those issues. So, you know, the question then becomes what is it that people really do remember about their own experience and how does that travel to?
0: Yeah. And it's, I found that last section really fascinating because you go into some depth about the play itself and how it was, as you say, it was a, it was a dramatized history or a historical drama. So there were a lot of liberties taken with the facts to get the message that the playwright wanted to deliver across. And What was the message that the playwright wanted? Well,
1: he really wanted um, people to know something about the study and he thought having it you know, dramatized this way we would get the ethics of it really, uh, you know, the the lack of ethics of it across in a kind of sympathetic um, way. But for example, some of the men in Tuskegee, um, so one of the ways that the playwright does it, because if you think about it, you have to dramatize the impact of um, syphilis. So in the neurological complications, it means you Often have a a leg, a neurological damage, and so your leg doesn't quite work, and you you have a drag on one of your legs sometimes. So he has the men be um, have a dance troupe. which is why the play is called Miss Ever's Boys, because that's the name of their dance troupe. Um, and so some of the men were really quite horrified by this and g- gave a statement that said they didn't see themselves as dancing boys. They thought this was racist. And so the poor playwright, who had used this as a way to dramatize the problem, got into some hot water in Tuskegee itself over. Um, trying to dramatize it in this particular way, which unfortunately fit into certain stereotypes about African-Americans as dancers and musical and all of those kinds of issues.
0: Yeah, and in that sense, he may have been caught up in, as we all inevitably are in The Times, which is that was his, you know, those were maybe the kind of things that he would refer to to convey dramatically right. what happened. And also in the news shows, The Prime Time Live, and then there was another one on Nova, I think. Right, Deadly but Deception. Yeah, and you write about also, too, how those were edited to portray particular things, which it seemed to be a lot of it was, uh, not that the Public Health Service and and the CDC were, uh, behaved well through this thing, I'll say, but but demonizing the doctors kind of individually, yes. I think.
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely, and they didn't help themselves either. I mean, some of it was, you know, you would think someone would have said to them, listen, it happened a long time ago. Now's time to say, you know, it was a long time ago. We thought about things differently, but these guys get on. I mean, part of the reason we ended up um, forming the legacy committee and getting the apology is that we watched um, one of these films. It was done actually a BBC film was done as well in the early 90s, and they interview um several of the physicians and they're on there and they're not saying, gee, we're really sorry, we shouldn't have done it. They're saying, we did a good study. It was a good thing. We were really trying to help. We were on a war against syphilis. We were really trying to find out what was going on. These people did good things for their, for their race, blah, blah. And you know, we're all sitting there with our eyes getting bigger and bigger like saucers going, oh my God, I can't believe they're still saying this. This is outrageous. We need an apology. And that's what, what the push was because we were so freaked out by their failure to apologize.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and pretty one of dumb. one of, I mean, pretty dumb. Yeah.
1: <laughs> just you know, you wonder where their PRA, you know, their public relations. I mean, nobody obviously talked to the right person who said, you know, just shut up or refuse to talk or you know apologize, even if you don't believe it. But they didn't, so they just showed themselves. It was really stunning.
0: Yeah, you wonder if that was something necessary for them to avoid cognitive dissonance. That this is what they've devoted so many years of their life and their identity to, yeah, Yeah. I was just going to mention the one character, Sidney Olansky, who was from the public health service, Uh and he didn't come across very well throughout. And I was thinking that's perhaps because I think this was in the 1960s when he said this, but you quoted him as saying, this was meant to be a progressive study with the hope that as it went along, we would pick up interesting things, with the important thing being what actually kills them. And he said that, I believe it was well after penicillin had been introduced. Yeah. So, but then also when he was interviewed, I think it was in the prime time, he was, as you say, not apologetic, defending the study the whole way.
1: Right. Oh, no, it was just horrible. And people were really horrified because he was this very famous dermatologist now in private practice in Atlanta. And his sons, I think, also were in practice with him. And he just, you know, when that thing came out in the early 90s, people were just completely furious at him. Um, You know, but I think, so what I try to do when I talk to particularly medical uh, personnel, students or, you know, physicians about the study, and I say, look, um, obviously you don't want to do what these people did, but I want you to think about how easy it would be to be them, to get so caught up in the importance of your own research that you forget who's standing in front of you and what it means for them. And I think that's the important lesson here is less, Oh my God, these are monsters. And the reason I say that is because when Jim Jones was doing his book, he interviewed one of the physicians who was no longer around when I was doing mine, but he said to him, well, why didn't the studies, the Nuremberg trials give you pause, right? Why didn't you stop? And the physician looked at him like he was out of his mind. And he said to Jim, but they were Nazis. And so, that's really resonated with me. And I think what I really worry about is so it's too easy with a lot of these studies to say, okay, this happened a long time ago. You know, we used to be racist, but we're not anymore, you know, blah, blah, blah. I would never do anything like this. And I think our job as a historian, my job as a historian is to help people understand that these weren't monsters. Really. They really thought they were doing the right thing. Um, why did they think that? And, um, how might we learn about the mistakes that get made when you think you're doing the right thing, not when you're doing the wrong thing. So I think that's really important about these studies. All of these guys thought what they were doing really mattered and would help in the end.
0: Did they actually, you said it was a disaster as a study. And I mean, did did they produce anything that did help further our knowledge about syphilis?
1: Really. I mean, what we knew in the end is that the disease often, not everybody, not every, it wasn't like AIDS before, you know, we had the antiretrovirals. Not everybody dies from it. There was an adage that if a man had survived syphilis for 25 years, he was to be congratulated, not treated. So if you already have neurological damage, the penicillin probably isn't going to reverse it. If you have an aneurysm in your heart, the penicillin isn't going to fix that. Um, so the idea is to get to you, before any of those things um, sort of really happen, Um, So did we learn anything? No, we learned that we basically, um, a certain percentage of them will die from the disease. That's what we learned. We already knew that in
0: 1932. We knew that, yeah. One of the other things that I have wondered about this study and I think other people would wonder is, so over the years, over the many years, there were several efforts actually to lodge complaints about the study with the Mm -hmm. public health service or the CDC. And Peter Buxton, who was the one who eventually did get the story to a journalist, had also been working on, I mean, he'd been trying for quite a long time. So why weren't people more successful in getting attention drawn to the study?
1: You know, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, at, so in the 50s, people start raising some questions, other physicians write them, but most of those people were sort of more junior at that point and were basically told, this is being run by really senior people in the field. You don't want to cross them um you should shut up so that's what happened there was an attempt by a civil rights uh, black power group but it was kind of half hearted they did a press conference they sent out a press release but they didn't even do a press conference and nobody came nobody picked it up and um you know they would invite people lansky invited people down to see what he was doing i mean they didn't think they were doing anything wrong and so it took a while for people to understand it and peter buxton really did try he was actually even brought to, Alabama, to Atlanta to talk to people about the study and was essentially told to shut up and go home. Um, and there was a meeting in 1969 where they really did think about stopping the study and the CDC director then sent two um, public health uh, advisors to Tuskegee, not to talk to the men, mind you, but to talk to the black physicians in the, in the county. At a meeting, and it isn't exactly clear because nobody could find ever any minutes from that meeting, whether what they really said or not. And um, so, uh, you know, they came back and the CDC made the decision that if they ended the study, then they couldn't keep providing any of the money for the autopsies and the funerals. And they felt like they owed that to the men who were still in the study. So they kept it going for another couple of years until Buxton's story made the news. Mm. It's really stunning.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, I'd like to talk about, too, what the effect is today, because as I said, I hear uh, a couple of few months ago, I heard someone on the radio saying that uh, this was a study where men had been infected with syphilis. So, you know, you tried to clear that. That's not how it was. But obviously, um, there's a a message, if not a narrative out there, people are picking up. And it's been linked uh, since COVID. It's been linked to the fact that there's vaccine hesitancy, particularly among African-Americans, but you've just written or just published a paper where you dispute that. So could right. you say something about the relationship between uh, Tuskegee study in the American psyche and and of African-Americans and vaccine hesitancy?
1: Right, so we know um, once the states, actually for a while they weren't even keeping the data by, um, by race, but we started to then have some better epidemiological work. So we knew that the disease was affecting um, Native Americans, uh, Latinx people and African-Americans at higher uh, rates. So there was immediately this concern about why the disease was more, uh, COVID was more widespread in those communities. And then as the vaccine rollout starts to be planned, there starts to be discussion of what's called vaccine hesitancy. That is when people were asked, they seemed a little bit hesitant Mind you, during the Trump administration, mostly uh, why people wouldn't try the the vaccines, and when journalists started to write about this, or even health uh, health people, they did it without doing any research. Really, they just said, "Well, there's all this." racism in the history of what's happened. And they would name essentially three studies. The first one being Tuskegee usually. So Tuskegee would be mentioned, um, Dr. Marion Sims, who operated on slave women without anesthesia during the 1840s. And then um, the story of Henrietta Lacks, whose um, cells were used um, to create the first um, cell lines that we use in research. So those three stories started to circulate again in all of these newspaper accounts and I keep a running Google alert on Tuskegee syphilis and it usually, you know, one or two things every couple of weeks. And then studying, starting with COVID, there would be hundreds of things in my alert, right? About it. So it's suddenly, you know, and what happens often in sort of social media journalism these days, one person says it, then the next person writing about it because they've got to meet a deadline in the next 20 minutes, right? They don't do have time to do it, spend like I did 20 years thinking about this, right? They write it up and they rely on whatever the last person just said. And that seems like a good idea, that explains it, right? And bam, oh, there it was. And it was even in um, a Saturday Night Live routine a couple of weeks ago where um, they were doing a show about why there was black hesitancy and Tuskegee again gets mentioned um, as the reason. Why? And so in this article, my colleague Evelyn Hammonds and I argue that it isn't about Tuskegee, that keeping, keeping relying on that is a way to look into the past rather than
0: acknowledge
1: what's happening now, what people's experiences in the current period are with the racism baked into the American medical system, the assumptions about racial differences between blacks and whites, and also the way people are treated constantly or not treated because they don't have access. So we argued that the issue isn't about Tuskegee at all. And if people invoke it, it's sometimes just laziness in terms of the way journalists or health people use it. But also if people of color use it, it's often as a way to say, it's really about racism. They just use Tuskegee as a kind of way to say that without knowing any of the details of the study. I mean, it, as it said, it ended nearly, it'll be 50 years next year that it ended. So how much could people really super remember exactly what happened?
0: Mm. Yeah. And It would be interesting to know, uh, you know, to go out into communities and find out what people actually do know about the study.
1: Right, and even if they know something, it doesn't translate as, so someone was enterprising enough, I think it was an NPR um, study, um, where somebody went to Tuskegee. Right. And then started to ask people in Tuskegee. And it was the same. I mean, you know, so, you know, people ask me, well, how did the study affect people in Tuskegee? And I said, look, it's just like there isn't a black community. There isn't a response to the experience of having even a family member. So one of my colleagues down there, for example, her cousins were all in the study, and she, you know, came to terms with it, understood why it happened, and got involved in doing more memorializing about the study in the community, Um, and then another man I met, his uncle and his father were in it, and then his parents' marriage fell apart, and he said, well, it was caused by my father being in the study, and I thought, well, you know, marriages fall apart for very complicated reasons always, and who knows what really happened in this marriage, but it's it becomes the story that that family tells about the father's sort of shame of being in the study that then causes the marriage to fall apart. So who knows, right? Um, So there isn't one reaction, just like there's not one Black community, or there isn't one Tuskegee community either. Um, People have very different reactions based on all sorts of sociological and political and individual reasons.
0: Yeah. And so, and in that paper, you argue that it's much more important that we look at the um, systemic racism that's been entered into the way people receive medical care or medical um, right taking right. uh, diagnosis et cetera exactly
1: I mean just all of the assumptions so I keep laughing so my husband's African American and every time he goes for healthcare if something goes wrong we get this rap that goes so blah blah um, because you're African American blah 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 and you know and my eyes start getting bigger. And <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> As that's happening, and he's looking—he's very shy, so he's looking at me, going, "Please don't, you know, get into a (laughs) screaming fight." Right? And I'm—I'm not, but I want to write this essay. I still—I'm gonna threaten to write it. I actually think I'll do it. So his family's from Virginia. So the joke in the family is that they're related to Thomas Jefferson, right? right? So I'm gonna write this essay that's called "My Husband's Thomas Jefferson Gene Problem" because there is no way to know what's what what ails him comes from the Jefferson genes, right? The white raped dreams of the slave owners who owned his family in the past or from some long distant African, you know, ancestor who knows. Right. So, I mean, but they make this assumption. It's like a one drop medical rule that if you're African-American at all in any percentage, that somehow there's some genetic difference. And I'm hopeful that in fact, that COVID will help us bury the genetic assumptions about difference by race, that it will help people understand that the people who got sicker here were people who had to go to work, who had to use public transportation, who didn't have access to healthcare, who couldn't work from home, who lived in overcrowded housing. All of those things led to disease transmission, not vulnerability. And if they were more vulnerability because they were overweight um, or had diabetes or other comorbidities, it's because all of those conditions actually led to those diseases in the first place.
0: Yeah. So much more about the social determinants of health versus.
1: Precisely. So mm. I'm, that's the only hope I have out of all of these terrible deaths would be that at least we can explain more of what goes on from um, the, the poor medical care that people get um, often in black communities um, and lack of access and just all of the history of the structural racism that affects all the social determinants of health.
0: Mm. So one last thing I wanted to ask you about, Um, towards the end of the book, you write about two historians who established the narrative of the study, uh, who are Alan M. Brandt and and James Jones, who you mentioned Mm -hmm. before. And you say of them, each historian would be captive to passions the study aroused in the politics of the 1970s and the evidence then available. So my question to you is, what passions do you think will hold historians captive (laughs) <laughs> when they consider this study uh, in our present moment today of, for instance, widespread awareness of COVID-19 disparities and the impetus of the Black Lives Matter movement?
1: It's, it's a great question, Rachel. Um, I, I have to think about that. I, I mean, I'm hoping that it will make people understand the social disparities that lead to the men in, in the study um, uh, joining in the first place. So one of the things I wrote about, um, I wrote an essay about this when there was a debate about the Affordable Care Act was first happening, for example. And um, some of the Republicans were doing things like sponsoring ads in Black communities that said things like, remember the Tuskegee study? This is what happens when the government gets involved in your health care. So I wrote this essay that, that said, look, if the men in Tuskegee had had access to universal health insurance, right, if we had had the National Health Insurance Program then, none of them would have signed up. They signed up because they were being promised free health care. That's what the promise was. I mean, they were promised that they're, not only would their bad blood be treated, but Rivers really functions as their private public health nurse. And so, um, so what I argued was that they, they agreed to it because they were going to get health care. So I think one of the things that hopefully COVID will help us think about is that again, that is why would the men agree to do it? Um, What were the social conditions that led them to having the disease in the first place? I mean, as I said to my students, all it means, they didn't have any more sex than you do. It just means they didn't have access to condoms. If they had access to more condoms, they wouldn't have passed the disease on. Right? So, you know, there's just all of those kinds of issues that need to be explored. And I'm hoping that our, our consciousness about the differences around COVID will help people think some more um, about what happened in Tuskegee and for what those reasons were.
0: And we'll have to wait for the historians to tell us.
1: <laughs> yes, right. That's right. To be, to be continued, right?
0: To be continued. We'll have you back, Susan. Yeah,
1: right. In 20 years, as my mother would say, from your mouth to God's ear. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> Uh, Well, thanks so much, Susan. Uh, I think that's really enlightening. And I want to let people know about the book. It's called Examining Tuskegee, the infamous syphilis study and its legacy. And it's really um, deeply, deeply researched. And as you've heard over so many years, and so many of those questions have been answered. The only one we don't know is how will this be seen in 20 years? Yep. Okay, Uh, well, thanks again so much, Susan, for being with us today.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity.